This month's edition of the Ninja Tune podcast finds Nabir Iqbal in conversation with Kieran Yates, a journalist whose work has appeared in publications from The Guardian to The Enemy and co-author of 2011's Generation Vexed. The pair discuss communicating themes of resistance in their work during an age of worldwide political upheaval. Nabia traces back the influences of her new album, Weighing of the Heart, out on Ninja Tune, and explores what it means to make music after throwing off her initial moniker of Throwing Shade. Don't forget to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcast. Rising from the ashes of throwing shade. Yeah. And pleased to be in the same room as you because. <laughs> the last time we saw each other was on a panel talking about Tukrakor, a documentary about Muslim punks. And when I saw that you were on the lineup, I messaged the organiser and said, Oh my gosh, I really want to go and see Nabiha speak. And he said the only way that I could actually do that because it was sold out was to maybe join the panel. So. Yeah, and then I was so glad that it, that was the turnout and you actually were on the panel too. And that was the first time we met in real life. And it was good, <laughs> like straight into it, do you know what I mean? <laughs> so this is privilege. So usually to get in a room with you, you have to uh, battle the no, sold out well, tickets. Yeah, I mean, but I wasn't sold out because of me, was it? it was just, but it was, a, it was such an interesting night, actually. And watching that film about Muslim punk made me think about a lot of things. just wish the discussion we'd had was longer because it wasn't even like, scraping the surface really was it mm. so the the conversation was about a documentary about uh, Muslim punks um, a musical anarchist from 2009 and the conversation was looking at the British South Asian experience in the wake of well what's happened in the last 10 years and of course I guess you're central to that conversation and that discussion yeah by default <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, for me, it was just interesting to watch that documentary and follow these, you know, Muslim South Asian people who'd grown up in America and like look at their journey of how they sort of like I don't know communicated their beliefs and like their own sort of identities through their music and how it then took them on their path back to Pakistan and what they did out there. Um, there's, there's a lot of positives, but also quite a few negatives in it. I think I don't know. But I feel like if you're from a sort of ethnic minority background and you've grown up in a society where you are, you know, the minority, then there's a lot of these um, issues that come up in your mind, and and I think most of the time people sort of just ignore them. But I feel like if you're if you've sort of plunged yourself into this industry, for example, music or something more creative, where it's you have to actually sort of confront it a bit more. It's interesting to see how people do that. And also how these issues of resistance um, are just part and parcel of, of existing in the UK sometimes if you are part of a, a UK minority. So I think often we think about you know the, the resistance of our music being associated with something like punk, but actually it can be far gentler and far more subtle, which, yeah. I, which I feel with you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, my, my music's not as like raucous as what we saw in that film. 
central like by near baker street in regent's park and that's where i'm from born and bred you know yeah it was cool like growing up in central london was amazing wouldn't really have swapped it for anything else but we grew up grew up in an area where there weren't really a lot of south asian people at all you know compared to other areas of london where there's a big community and um you know, my parents, I'm the oldest of six and my parents have just worked super hard to give us all like a good upbringing and good education and like get us into good schools and stuff and make us study really hard. So I think they were, they were a bit like, what are you doing? When I, I was like, I'm not going to do law anymore, I'm going to focus on music. Because before I was doing music full time, I was actually like, you know, training to be a barrister. So that went out the window. <laughs> but maybe there's like a way that I'll be able to combine the two things. I was working for a while in South Africa doing women's rights with a group of lawyers in Cape Town and that was amazing. And in my own way I feel like what I'm doing now is sort of, you know, trailblazing and and representative of what maybe many like females want to do. And you know, it's something new, so there's, there's those ideas still come through I think when I'm thinking about my work. St John's Wood so by was, Regent's Park. What did it sound like growing up? Well, my first musical obsession was Michael Jackson, which, I mean, it must be the same for so many people, just if you're in that era, isn't it? Like, born in the late 80s or whatever. And then, yeah, and I just was really into music, like, from day one, really. That's what my parents say, anyway. Like, they got me this tape of... No, they taped a documentary of Michael Jackson off the telly and then I just insisted on watching it basically every day and I watched it so much that the tape ran out, like it wore out. Mm. 
So then they had to go and buy me another video of Michael Jackson. I watched that every day. I mean, I really have such a strong memory of that video as well, even though I would have been like two or three years old. And then um, just being really into music at school, like obviously started with the recorder, but then I just took it like really seriously. And then I was in the recorder ensemble and I played desk and, and treble and just like, <laughs> totally, like 100% yeah, geeked out yeah, on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then flute, piano, guitar, and then just the kind of music that I got into maybe when I was like around seven or eight and then up through to maybe 12 or 13. It's just like all the Britpop kind of stuff, all the really guitar music. Mm. I was really obsessed with Oasis. Um, Noel and Liam Gallagher lived like around the corner from my house. So I used to see them on St. John's Bed High Street and just freak out. I remember one time I just walked into a lamppost because they were sitting outside this cafe with Alan McGee, who's their manager, and Paul Weller as well. And then I was just like, I'd gone to get the milk or something. My mum was like, go and get some milk. And then on the way back, I saw them. I was like, what? <laughs> just, yeah, so that was, that was also like a very exciting part of living in St. John's Wood, which is otherwise quite a quiet area. Yeah, what was, you know, environmentally, what did it sound like? Was it kind of very bustling? Was it kind of quite musical? Was it...? It's an interesting area because it's so close to central London. I mean, I could walk to Oxford Street from my house, but it's quite chilled. So you don't feel like maybe as hectic as you would be if you were living in Soho or somewhere like that, but you're still very connected. And then um, there's a lot of, you know, strong musical heritage in St. John's as well. There's like some really, um, you know, important music studios there. Obviously Abbey Road is the most famous one. I live behind that studio right now and that zebra crossing just drives me nuts because <laughs> there's just always so many tourists. I'm like, get out of the way. Um, so there's that and then there's also Rack, which is, um, it's like a more sort of, you know, incognito studio, but so many amazing people have recorded there, including Michael Jackson. And I got a chance to visit that studio for the first time quite recently, actually, last summer. And then there's also close by like the BBC Made Avail Studios as well. And I think like during the 60s, there was a lot of activity there, like obviously because of the Beatles and Rolling Stones and people like that. And Jimi Hendrix used to live down the road. Um, Joy Division also lived close by when they moved to London for a bit. So there's all, you know, you see like the blue plaques and things. And so that's made me sort of like appreciate the area that I grew up in more and like want to find out more about its musical history. But also interesting because the sound is very rich, but happening in these silent, quiet spaces. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the history of music happening inside studios and yeah, behind I mean, closed doors. Exactly, on very unsuspecting streets. But yeah, that, that's the amazing thing I think about London, you know, it's just this very like intricate sort of patchwork of things going on in every area. There's interesting things and very different things as well. And you wouldn't know, I mean, if you were going through St. John's Wood now, you wouldn't realise that you were walking past this like incredible music studio 
where like huge pop stars are recording music and things like that. Oh yeah, my dad. What was, the, um, what was the soundtrack to that and what are the dishes that take you back? Uh, so yeah, my dad used to have a few, um, like, I guess, Indian restaurants in London. He's not in that business anymore. But he started a few on Drummond Street, which is, you know, sort of famous street near Euston where there's a lot of Indian restaurants and those are still there. And he had this other one called Papadums, which was by um, Great Portland Street. and and that was like his main one and I have like strong memories of that because you still always do my birthday parties in there and stuff you know <laughs> and uh, yeah the food was always really tasty and what's the dish that takes you back uh probably just like chicken tikka or something you know with a naan that's just my favorite now as well um also sauf you know um <laughs> you know you get at the end where it's like covered in the yeah, fennel. Yeah, fennel. Like <laughs> just saying that or the word for it, and it's it looks like hundreds and thousands. You know when they do that. Yeah, so I remember eating a lot of that when I was a kid. Um, just uh, yeah, I remember being in the restaurant a lot. And what music did they um, play? Um, you know, just chilled. Probably just like sitar music and stuff like that, like chilled North Indian kind of classical music. Kavali. I think they had some Kavali concerts in there as well. And then at home, yeah, my parents always used to listen to a lot of, like, they don't do it anymore, but like Spectrum and Sunrise Radio, you know, the Asian radio stations. Sunrise Radio. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm -hmm. And then I also remember on television, there used to be a lot more sort of like Asian themed music programs or just programs in general. I remember like BBC Two and Channel Four used to put stuff on. And there was this one program that used to come on every weekend called so uh, Songs and Memories. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember that and my parents always used to watch that and tape it and it was like old Bollywood stars just talking about songs that they'd worked on mm. and then you know it would be an interview with them and then they'd show the songs it's quite cool and I think that's where I first discovered that song um, or the film Mughal Azam mm. which is one of my favorite films ever and with amazing music in it and I, I remember that in the opening credits of that program, they had like uh, shots from that film. Mm. Yeah, it's an old school one. That's an old school one. Yeah, I think it's it's from like the I think they started filming in the late fifties or sixties. Yeah. yeah, where they put in the color afterwards. They filmed it in black and white and then added the color afterwards. <laughs> Thank you. 
spin on those traditional ones like Devdas, yeah. which is like an, an old ancient love story that's been remade and remade with Ashwari Rai and had the Bollywood treatment. But it's funny how those things filter into your subconscious, yeah. um, especially when I was younger growing up in, I grew up in West London, Southall. It's quite uncool to listen to Bollywood in, in my house anyway in my school and then sort of slowly become appropriated by yeah. various producers and artists. Your, I guess your sort of like social pressures or like the sort of um, trends that were happening would have been quite different because in Southall there's obviously like a huge Asian community. So I'm guessing at your school there was like a big Asian demographic as well. Was it like that? <laughs> yeah, there was. Yeah. It was the, the kind of musical soundtrack of our social spaces was definitely US hip hop, uh, rap, um, bhangra. So that was, yeah, that was what was played a lot. Um, but it's really interesting hearing from you how those, you know, those kind of finer details of Bollywood samples or, well, old school Bollywood yeah, samples. Yeah, old school. <laughs> yeah, because really there wasn't, yeah, because none of that was really happening in the school environment because where I went to school, it was quite mixed and, you know, it wasn't like a sort of very big Asian, Asian contingent. Secondary school was a bit different. There it was like main, the main like the main kind of body of girls was mainly Jewish because it was go, I was going to school in northwest London so it's Jewish and then after that the biggest um, group was Indians and then everyone else who didn't fit into those two categories would be the miscellaneous <laughs> in the miscellaneous category and so I was in that one. Ambiguous <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Just add, yeah. So, uh, but it was quite funny for me going to school and. You know, actually, Bhangra and uh, Bollywood becoming being distinctly uncool, um, and then going to university and, and realizing that for a lot of the middle class white people that I was in university with, they really fetishized Bollywood, and I thought that was always quite lame. And then I, I remember hearing it kind of pop up in plastic people kind of house sets or yeah. little dubstep samples, and finding that really hilarious. In a good way or a bad way? Uh, in a bit of a both way. Yeah. <laughs> Why? I think it was just funny because uh, I guess it's natural the things that you uh, reject when you're a teenager mm. and also the things that make up your identity being heard through different through a Western ear is also a bit funny. 
And I think it's something to do with also just get growing up a bit, you know, getting a bit older and you start thinking about it more because all the sort of things I'm thinking about now in terms of my identity and what it means and what it means in terms of what I'm doing and like the space I'm occupying, I never really had those thoughts at all growing up. And I think part of that's just because like when you're a kid you don't really think about these things. I know there's definitely, there were probably times when I was just like, hmm, how come I'm not white or something? Cause <laughs> but then, you know, in a very sort of like juvenile naive way. And then also I think being a bit naive when I started concentrating on music as a full-time thing and, and I remember telling myself that I'm just gonna do the music and and that's it and I'm not I don't want to sort of incorporate any of the other stuff like the politics of it or anything like that because I shouldn't have to and it's true I shouldn't have to but then the thing is is that when you're not I guess like a white guy who's making electronic music then automatically who you are is a very important thing and you do have to confront it and work out what it means for who you are and what you're doing. But you realise that it is inherently political just existing mm. in the music world in Britain. Totally. Tell me a little bit about how Throwing Shade as a moniker came about and why you decided to use your real name. Well, when I picked Throwing Shade as a moniker, it was, you know, it was before I I was focusing on music as a career. It was way before that. It was just, um, I think, well, yeah, during uni, maybe during my master's or even like when I was doing law conversion course and in London on the side, putting on loads of parties with my friends who all did music. And I started DJing at them and then also just making my own tunes and I picked the name Throwing Shade just because um, I really liked the phrase, I liked how it sounded. Uh, I found out about it from watching that film Paris is Burning which is about the whole like 80s New York like voguing ballroom scene and just like the phrase yeah and then it, I think I watched that film and I went to New York for the first time ever and then those two things were like had quite a huge impact on me so that's why I picked that. And then obviously at that time I had no idea what it would turn into or where it would lead me to. So it's just like a kind of fun moniker on the side. Also just a side note to that, isn't it really interesting how those nights, the Vogue nights night that are probably most popular in terms of the voguing community and the queer black community in New York at the moment. Actually uh, the last time I went over last year there was playing so many Bollywood mashups like Mike Q really? type Bollywood <laughs> like mashups and there were a lot more kind of yeah South Asians and um, you know Latins um, kind of members of the community in those spaces. Yeah, so New York's an interesting really one. Yeah, I feel like over there there's definitely more of an equilibrium when it comes to different ethnic minorities occupying different music scenes and I think it's been like that for a while because yeah that first time I went to New York was 2011 and I went to a ghetto gothic party mm. at that time you know before it became this huge thing and I remember going into this club and seeing 
Asma, who's from Nguzi Guzi. I had no idea who she was, but I just went into this club and I went to that party alone because <laughs> I was just like, I really want to go. Um, and I didn't really know loads of people in New York then. And I just remember going into this basement and it had such a huge impact on me because I'd never really been at that sort of event before where there's people from all different backgrounds, all different skin colors, like all looking different ways and just, and it was all about the music that was bringing them together and it just was so cool. And I remember seeing Asma starting to DJ and like, I don't know, in my mind, I was just really idolizing her because I just thought it was so great because I hadn't seen that sort of thing in London up till that point. And I remember like, I remember I got back to where I was staying and I messaged all my mates in London that I used to put parties on here with, just being like, you guys, I just went to this insane night and like, you have to check out all these people. When you kind of like survey what's going on in other places through social media, I feel like New York's got a good thing going on. And I think actually uh, the UK club culture is starting to catch up with that yeah. a little bit because, yeah, definitely you mentioned Nguzi Nguzi but also Manara, um, Night's Lugs have been mm. doing a really great job of that for a long time and actually those club spaces, of course, um, Kindness, all of those all of those sort of purveyors of, of all of those different sounds and cultural sharing has, has really changed the way that club culture yeah, feels over the last couple of years. I think, yeah, it's really fresh. I put on a night um, every once in a while called Nice Touch, which is a club night. And the last one I did a couple months back, um, I made it a full 100% Asian British lineup for, um, for all the DJs. And who was on it? Uh, <laughs> it was Manara, um, this guy called Imran Peretta, who's an artist but also DJs, plays sick like garage, funky house kind of stuff. Um, Lyle mm. and. Anu and then myself as well and when I was putting it together I was just thinking have I seen a lineup like this before where every single person on it comes from a South Asian background and in all my years of sort of going to gigs and clubs in London I don't think I'd ever been to one like that you know where and where it wasn't showcased as a like Asian music thing you know it was just all of us playing our own things and it was it felt so good the energy that night you know because the way that you emotionally respond to the space is different, you know. You, of course, a lot of people um, grew up on UKG and grew up on all of these kind of sounds, but then it just takes a second sample of Kush Kush Wataher and suddenly the kind of nostalgia and the, the visceral relationship to what's happening in the DJ booth is completely different. And I think for me, the first time that, that happened was a couple of years ago. Um, listening to a Manara set and feeling like, whoa, yeah. this is what it must feel like for everybody else when they hear a nostalgic song from their childhood being played out. Yeah, and and with like 100% conviction as well. That's what I love about her sets. She just goes for it. And yeah, she definitely has some next level energy when she DJs compared to other people, you know. It's Did just like know? very in your face and like confident in what she does. And that's an amazing thing as well. We definitely need more of that. 
anyway, to take us take us back, a slight diversion. <laughs> but yeah, what were what were what was the moment that you thought actually my name's Nabi? Oh yeah, so, yeah, that's what we were talking about. <laughs> that's what I want. You know. That's yeah. So okay. Be. So yeah. So started throwing shade, and then that just yeah, without me even realizing, just started get, getting more and more momentum. Uh, my first record came out in October 2013 on Kasim Moss's Omanira imprint and the, obviously that was under Throwing Shade and it, it was that was, way. And was that eight releases ago? Yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, it's weird, you know, the cycle has been really from October to October and then when my album on Ninja Tune got released it was October 2017 and, and then I was like, wow, so that's it, in four years I've got from here to there. It felt cool. Um, but yeah, anyway, so then throwing shade, yeah, I was just throwing shade. And then um, as, as I started to, like, I guess, gather popularity and just momentum as a music music artist, as a producer and DJ, I started thinking about, I think started thinking more about, like, who I was and what I was doing and and just, you know, being on a lineup, being in a club and just... N- for a split second realizing like I'm the only sort of like female brown person here on this lineup amongst all these other like, white guys um, and then that coupled with receiving more and more messages from people from uh, everywhere like all around the world especially ethnic minority people were just saying you know it's so great to see you doing what you're doing because it's inspirational and I love doing music and I never thought it would be like possible for someone like me from a South Asian background or something to do that and that, you know I feel so happy whenever I receive those kind of messages because it makes me think like even if if I can um, you know inspire one person or give one person the courage to just do what they want to do then I'm doing the right thing and so just thinking more about that responsibility as well. idea that you know in, in Pakistan and in India where I'm from and from Punjab that there isn't a club culture that there isn't a thriving music culture and of course there is and actually I think I grew up thinking that and then when I went to places like Mumbai and Delhi when I was a little bit older I was like what uh, you know guitar music is massive yeah in know. Pakistan as well there's like a massive metal scene the metal scene is huge yeah. in India the club culture is massive like house and techno and of course dubstep is really big out there so this is a, there's this idea that you know we come from these oppressed cultures that you know aren't playing these kind this kind of music and of mm. course there are oppressions that are happening back home but th- we don't come from a space where there's no musical heritage. No, so I mean you just weird. can't generalize. You can't just say like oh yeah they don't play that kind of music because yeah. you're talking about 
two like hugely populated countries you know and yeah and so within that there's going to be so many different things going on and people like pursuing their interests and putting together parties and things it's not weird to see people that look like us behind a DJ booth. No, and yeah, I mean, like, I was also doing a bit of research about the music scene in Pakistan and then uh, discovered this label called Forever South and, and this whole scene in Karachi where they're putting on, like, ele- you know, electronic music events and club nights and stuff. And it's just really interesting to discover that stuff and and it just changes your perspectives, even for me, because, like, you know, you'd think that, like, maybe us being from those backgrounds would be a bit more we would be less shocked by it, but then we had, as you said, we've been conditioned to just believe that those things don't go on there. So it's quite surprising when you do actually find out. And it is a narrative that's perpetuated by the way that our work is critiqued. Mm. Um, And of course you felt that firsthand recently with an accelerator review that was surprised by the way that your music sounded and the way that your name sounded. Yeah, so I mean, so I decided to uh, finally drop the Throwing Shade moniker in and go with my real name Nabiha Iqbal around like the end of last year and uh, I made the name change with the announcement of my album on which came out on Ninja Tune um, in December and they announced it in October 2017 so that's when I was like guys <laughs> I'm not using the moniker anymore I'm just going to be Nabiha Iqbal and 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 most of the support was overwhelmingly positive and people were really into it although you know before that I had toy I had sort of like um, put the idea out there on, on my socials and it created quite a big debate between people saying no keep the name because we love it and other people being like no go for it change it to Nabiha so but yeah it took me a while to get to that place but when I when I finally made the decision to change and use my real name it felt good you know what does Nabiha mean? Um, well it's an Arabic name and it means like intelligent <laughs> and, and it also exists in Hebrew and in Hebrew it means prophetess yeah <laughs> so I mean all names just mean good things I guess because why would your parents give it to you otherwise um, yeah so then I decided that and I thought I mean it's still early days you know so it'll be interesting to see how this year pans out and whether it like what the effects of it are because I was thinking is it going to affect my bookings people want to gonna want well, what, will they want to have me like on their bills now that I haven't I'm not using that moniker anymore and I've got like a very sort of ethnic name or have a spicy name yeah Um, and then yeah this review came out of the album I mean all the reviews have been so solid it's been amazing like people being into the album and stuff and then I kind of expected there was going to be some kind of dodgy reactions to my um, name change but yeah this guy called Anton Lang who wrote a review for Accelerator made a few quite strange remarks about how my music sounded very white and it didn't it didn't fit in with like quote unquote the Asian British experience that we are usually given I mean I still don't even know what he means by that and um, yeah just the fact that you know I'd put out this very like guitar focused album but I'm a South Asian female with this name and how how it obviously was just a bit too incongruous for him but the you know what that review demonstrates is exactly the reason why I've chosen to start using my real name because I, I wanna, it's my small attempt really at trying to undermine all of those you know preconceptions that people have about what your music should and shouldn't sound like and I feel like as a South Asian female there's, there, I have more obstacles in that, in that sense than other people would have 
and um, I just, you know, I mean, I grew up in London, born and bred, and, and my musical heritage and my musical experience would be, um, you know, it, true to being a Londoner, and so I don't know why why it would be a surprise for me to make guitar music or to say that Oasis were one of my main influences growing up. But I suppose it's even more historical than that, you know, we come from, you know, histories of instruments and instrumentation and musicality. And so if you've grown up in environments uh, like London, of course, that's not unusual, but then even further back, culturally, we've always been aligned with the sitar and the dawn and the tabla and all of these kind of things. Mm -hmm. So the idea again, you know, it's, it's a kind of, look, it's, it's an extension of the conversation about people like us being in the DJ booth, yeah. people like us <laughs> or that look like us. Um, playing instruments exactly um, and the funny is thing is, is yeah and the funny thing is is that I play the sitar as well so yeah yeah I mean you just can't put anyone in a box you know and I think a lot of people feel like they're really open-minded and and they won't make these sort of judgments but a lot of the time it's quite subconscious and they'll say things or think things without even realizing that maybe they're coming at this from a slightly prejudiced or like narrow-minded perspective and I don't know, I mean, you can't blame everybody for that because everyone, you know, you are a product of your environment and what you've grown up in and just because you say something that doesn't really sit well with other people doesn't necessarily have to mean that you mean it in a malicious way. But the thing with the guy who wrote this article is that honest, I spoke to him on the phone about it because I actually know him. The point where I just thought, okay, this is yeah, this is basically like we've come up against a brick wall was the fact that he he refused to first believe that there was anything like racist about what he'd written. And then secondly, he just said he would refuse to accept that anybody else could interpret it in that way, like in an offensive way. And, and he just wouldn't accept that. And then I was like, that's where the problem lies. You know, when there's this level of arrogance that stops you from even thinking that someone else can read what you've written and, and interpret it in a different way to how you see it. And that's what we've got to really sort of try and dismantle, I think. perspective <clears throat> all of these kind of conversations about identity and you know immigrant communities and backgrounds as musicians when we're talking about in the context of being within the music industry or the music world you know they will they will continue to you know continue because of course we are a UK minority but really the issue is does the music sound good right and 
your music does sound good. Thanks. And I really, <laughs> actually really love that album. So I feel like we should talk a little bit more about it. But first, tell me a bit about last night because I know that you did a live set, right? Yeah, so it was a live. One. Yeah, your first one. Yeah. So last night you were in a studio in West London performing the album mm-hmm. live to a select group of 30 or so people. What? How did that go? <laughs> it went well and I'm so glad that we got through it because, I mean, anybody who's listened to the album and who maybe knows a bit about how I perform, uh, so far for every one of my previous releases, whenever I play a live show, it's a solo project. Mm. Uh, because I make all the music myself, but then with this album, Weighing of the Heart, um, you know, the, the instrumentation is a lot more complex and it's just too much to do as like a solo artist on a stage. So I've actually been uh, so grateful to have Max, who I mentioned earlier, his music name is Lyle, mm-hmm. who played at my night. He's been helping me out with the live set. So it was us two last night. We've just been rehearsing for the last two weeks and we put the show on in uh, my studio building. It was really cool, yeah. I was just, it was fun and it was nice to be able to like sing out to everybody and play the guitar and. So what's the so what's the setup? Can you just give us a bit of a visual? So like? yeah, so there's two of us and like I'm obviously I'm focusing on lead vocals and guitar, um, and then I'm using like a few pedals and things and doing a bit of percussion and then um, Max is just. Um, in charge of synths, <laughs> playing a lot of keys because that's his main thing, and then also helping to just like trigger some of the um, the other elements of the tracks. We don't have a drummer yet, so been triggering the drums and things like that. But it, it works quite nicely, I think, as a setup, just two of us there, and it was just nice to be able to perform in that space as well because for me that building's been so integral to this whole process. Which building? Um, so I work in a studio in in West London that that's actually owned by Damon Albarn. So he has his studio downstairs where they record all the gorilla stuff and all his other projects. And then upstairs are um, a set of smaller studios that they rent out to different producers. I'm the only female in there, <laughs> no surprise. Well, I moved in uh, about a year and a half ago and that was thanks to some funding that I'd received from PRS. And when I found out I was successful, I was just so happy because it meant it, it meant that I could actually rent my own music studio for the first time. And then it just so happened by, you know, like sheer coincidence that I ended up in this place. So I've been working, I moved in there, started working on the album, wrote and recorded the entire album in there, then um, got it mixed in there as well in Damon's studio by um, his engineer, Steve Sedgwick, who's just so incredible. And like, I just had this weird moment. I remember one day when we were in the mixing phase, just being in the control room in that studio and be like, I'm mixing my debut album in Dame Norbarn's studio, what the hell is going on? So I did all of that there and then yesterday it just felt like coming full circle and also performing in that same building in the live room downstairs and it, it, it felt really incredible and it was just also nice to have everybody else there who'd been, who'd been around me through that whole process. It was quite intense, you know, the room's not huge. We packed about 30, 35 people in there and everyone had to Everyone sat down, I guess, because we made it look quite cozy with all these rugs and things. So people naturally went into the room and started sitting down and then sort of set the trend. So when me and Max got up on the stage, which wasn't even a stage, we were on the same level, and everybody's sitting down. And it wasn't that dark either because it was being filmed, so we couldn't really turn the lights down completely. Um, so you can see everybody's faces really clearly. And yeah, it's quite daunting. It's weird, you know, it's not the same as playing in a normal club 
where it's dark and there's like a bit more activity, people are at the bar or moving around, it's this, everyone's just focused on you. And then my mum was like dead centre, like right in front of me. And I was trying not to catch her eye too much. <laughs> what did your mum think then? Did she yeah, she loved it, she loved it, because it, uh, it was the first time she'd really seen me sing properly. And with my mum, you know, she's really into what I do, but sometimes I have to like, not really tell her about everything or share everything with her straight away. So for example, when I was working on the album and it was in the development stage, let's say, and I'd like got some tracks together, but still working on it. And I deliberately didn't play her anything until, until it was mixed and mastered. And I was like, here you go, this is the final product because otherwise she'll just be like, so don't you think this should sound a bit more like One Direction? You know, you need to listen to some more of those kind of songs to work out how you're gonna get number one. <laughs> Which like it's all advice coming from the right place, and then you know I'm not One Direction, and I never will be. Um, but it was cool. She came last night, and then for her, she saw the studio where I'd mixed the album for the first time because she hadn't seen it. So I took her in to meet Steve, the mixing engineer, and she was like, "Wow!" Because they have this huge, you know, control board in there, and then um, all the other outboard equipment. And f I think for parents who don't really get what you do when they come to your gigs or when they see it in a more sort of tangible way then it makes much more sense to them. It's like for me trying to explain to my parents what I'm doing as a DJ or a producer because they come from like quite a different background where you know trying to do music as a career wasn't really an option and also them having a very set idea about what I was going to do with my life you know like putting me through all this education and then hoping that I would turn out to be a barrister. <laughs> so I think there's a lot of weird, you know, for them it must be quite difficult to process. Of course, I think a lot of immigrant parents need these visual, visual benchmarks. So the first time maybe somebody sees you on TV or, you know, Stormzy yeah. obviously talks about the first time his mum saw him on a billboard and it was legit or, you know, the, yeah, they just need to see it's, for yeah. sure. And like my mum's just, you know, she's basically like my Google alert for anything that's coming up because I think she just reads through everything, you know, online, all the press. And then if she sees me like in The Guardian or Evening Standard or things like that, she's like, wow, okay, I that's get it now. Legit. Yeah, and like last year <laughs> when I played at the Tate Modern with Wolfgang Tillmans and that was such a huge show with so many people and then she's there and then for her, I guess she feels like, okay, I get it now because there's all these people here to see my daughter. So she must be doing something right. It's like 
you know, it's not necessarily looking for finite answers. It's just saying these are things that make me feel uncomfortable sometimes, yeah. and I don't know what I'm trying to say about that. But I'm just putting that out there, and you know, I'm experiencing these things that cause me a bit of imbalance and discordance sometimes. Yeah. Um, but you manage that without it sounding flat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you know, I think that that is. So yeah, just like discussing ideas like that is probably the closest thing to what I would call a love song. But you know, it's just, this is when you think about stuff, nothing's really black and white and nothing's clear. Nothing's clear to us. I really feel that. You can try, you can pretend that you understand what's going on or you can understand the person that you're in a relationship with, but I just don't feel that's the case. Because I feel like every single person on this planet has thoughts, and feelings that they never ever can communicate to anybody else and you know you could be there with the person that you're closest to and you could tell them so many things but there's always something you'll hold back and those are ideas that were coming out a lot on zone one to six thousand as well which is my song about life in a big city i i was really like influenced by william blake's poem called london and i kind of like mirrored a lot of his stanzas in my lyrics Anybody who knows the poem well, if they hear my track, they'll they'll immediately make that connection. Mm. Um, and in his poem, you know, he's talking about he's talking about the beauty of London, but then also all the stuff that happens in this big city that goes under the radar. And you know, what is the true experience of being a Londoner? And for me, I was thinking about that and just the sort of irony of being in a place where you're surrounded by millions of people, but at the same time, you can feel really alone and just the social pressures and anxiety that comes with having to try and like live this life that fits with what people expect of you. And I think that's made more extreme by like Instagram and like other social media where you just feel like under pressure to be doing cool things or being seen at the right places. And But inside your mind, you're actually having a really bad time. The sun will rise, the sun will set, seven days, five and two, from this life into the next, we're all just trying to The story is just like about, um, just thinking about the human experience. Is there a collective human experience? Why do people want to live? What makes, what motivates us? What is death? Like what's coming next? And I guess a lot of that is symbolized in the artwork on the front cover that comes from ancient Egyptian mythology, the weighing of the heart. It's like the original judgment day and just, yeah, forces beyond our control. Yeah, but that's perfect. That's perfect for the rave, isn't it? Because the rave is an underrated social space. It is about moving and responding physically to music beyond your control, you know, operating in the darkness. And that's why these spaces work so well. It's like if you are physically out of control for those precious moments, 
in a rave in like a quiet basement in Peckham or East London or West London or wherever you're raving and suddenly your body is moving mm. despite itself. It's just the power of music I think. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing I, I've I've really trying to But club music understand. specifically. Club music, yeah, or just anything which you know, there's feelings that I get from listening to music which I don't get from anything else in my life. Also, your club experience is slightly different because your your senses aren't dulled by alcohol and the rape. Right? Yeah, or drugs. Like I just feel like we, I mean, I'm I don't do anything. <laughs> I don't do anything. I don't drink. So don't you're take a thinker drugs. on the dance floor. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you know you just get this point of like this moment of like <laughs> supreme clarity and just like what is everybody doing? <laughs> like. I mean, if I wanted to drink, I could. You know, it's there, it's in front of me, but I just I just don't want to, and I don't want to take drugs either. I just like, I don't like the feeling of not being complimentous, and I just feel like, I don't know, each to their own, isn't it? I, whatever people want to do, just do it. But for me, I feel like not wouldn't be doing myself justice. Is that so. related to being a practicing Muslim? Well, I mean, I'm not even really like a practicing Muslim. I don't know what I am. I mean. I guess, you know, first it was out of habit because I grew up in a household where there wasn't any drink, drink and like we were taught don't drink, don't take drugs and stuff. You know, but then I was going out from probably like the age of 13, started going to gigs and so it's there in front of me but for some reason I just never wanted to do it. I've never drank alcohol in my life and people are like, what? But you're a DJ, what are you on? And and like, I don't know, the promoters always love my riders because it's like fruit juice and sparkling water. <laughs> but, <laughs> I was doing a piece a couple of years ago looking at, you know, the um, daytimers in the 90s. Mm. So these were, for those of you who don't know, were basically daytime raves that were being had across London, um, predominantly by members of the South Asian communities, British Asians. Um, and it was because, of course, a lot of the, the girls mostly weren't allowed to rave at night, so the people would bunk school and go and club in these spaces, you know, outside London, Milton Keynes and things, um, and then be back to be good, sweet girls <laughs> in the <laughs> evening. But, you know, a lot of that, you know, for the boys, I think it was different, but for it's girls... It's always different for the boys. Well, yeah. <laughs> but for the girls... That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> in the girls in those spaces, they weren't drinking. You know, they're just having yeah. a, the wickedest time, you know. Of course there were people who were, but drinking culture wasn't so much a part of that. It was about, like, garms and it was about, you know, what you're wearing and how you're dancing. And, of course, a lot of our spaces are like that, Mindy's and weddings and all of those spaces. Actually, if you're a woman, it is different. I mean, we're different for the same. I'm Punjabi Indian and you're... I'm Punjabi M Pakistani. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, we we kind of understand the power of that, of getting up and, and dancing and, and having a performative relationship with music without the need of... Yeah, and I mean, from the cultures that, that we come from, you know, our heritage, there's so music is such a huge part of it. It's huge and it's like integral to just daily life and it's not just about going to a club, you know, it's just everywhere and that's... You know, it's one thing that I started thinking about more when I was stud studying ethnomusicology as an undergrad at SOAS because you start learning about what music means to people around the world and in different cultures and what does it signify and I feel like in the West we've grown up um, where we just basically, you know, music's become something that we listen to for music's sake, like purely entertainment really, but 
Um, you know, everything that we've been discussing so far about you know being transported in the rave or just wanting to dance and not caring about anything else or not needing any other substances, just goes to show show you, just demonstrates the power of music. And once you start delving into that more and more, it's something that I feel a lot when I'm playing the sitar, you know, because it, that really transports me to somewhere else. And I feel like the whole sort of North Indian classical music tradition, which is so ancient, you know, where every scale is based on feelings and emotions and certain times of day and seasons and colours. It's just... It's well, they say you only understand the 10-minute raga if you spiritually connect to it, right? Yeah. you feel it in your... You feel it. You totally feel it. My mum always says uh, something that her grandfather used to say about the sitar being close to the earth because you're sitting on the floor. Mm. And so you're, you're feeling the earth's vibrations. Yeah, and even just the position that you have to sit in to play the sitar requires so much like concentration and stamina that it automatically puts your mind and body into a different gear before you start even playing. So when I took up the sitar it was as my main performance instrument whilst I was studying at SOAS and I already played the guitars and I always wanted to play the sitar and I just felt like okay this will be a natural progression because I play the guitar, can't be that much different and then I was so wrong because actually it's just a different world and and you know you can you can play the piano or guitar in quite a relaxed way without feeling like strain on your body even though maybe you should be sitting with a good posture but with sitar you have to be in that posture and you have to be engaged with the instrument holding it up and feeling it and yeah probably also sitting on the ground makes a difference and the, and also the respect that you have for music and instruments within that tradition i mean you must know about it being a Sikh and how much uh, of a pivotal role like all these instruments play in the Gurdwara and the respect that you give to the instruments you know like you have to you can't put them right on the floor you can't wear your shoes where you sit to play your music and things like that. We all know that the Beatles only got good after they went to India and they probably shampoo anyway.
say, you know, in in um, places like the Gurdwara, which is the Sikh temple, you know, all of that uh, reverence for the way that music happens in these spiritual spaces, I think that means that you're forced to engage in maybe a slightly different way. Mm. And music, obviously, is an interesting way of looking at the sounds of the global diaspora, um, especially the kind of South Asian diaspora. Because, of course, I've been thinking a lot about this because, of course, last year was the 70th anniversary of partition. And so one of the things and one of the less reported stories from that was about how people were taking these musical sounds and dispersing them around India and Pakistan. And so, you know, now when you go to places in India, which of course is so vast, you hear, you know, sort of sounds like Nawa, which is, you know, Moroccan, uh, North African music. And all of these, you know, I think once you become interested, you start tracing the pathways and the stories and how they've come to be. Um, and there's a there's a show that I really love, Punjabi Idol. Which is, <laughs> which Please is, tell me more. <laughs> which is a Punjabi expatter, and uh, it's, it's really great. But it's really funny because you know, of course, it's a you know it's a, a mainstream primetime show. I watch it when we when we go over to Jalandhar, and uh, you know they're playing you know anything from like Bhangra and you know pop Punjabi music to these really kind of classical ancient sounds on sitar and you know even the chorus sometimes and you're like wow this is being transmitted to like young teenage girls in like Mumbai and that you know and that just says so much about storytelling and pathways and how we got to where we are now yeah totally and it's just what you just said then makes me think of another one of these podcasts that I did last year with Sarathi Korwar who released his album on Ninja and, and he was he based all his music on field recordings looking at the African diaspora living in South Asia. He looked at India and then when I listened to the album I started doing research on that because you know because of my NTS show and stuff and like my interest in musical cultures across I the world. I love your NTS show. Oh, by <laughs> so I was just like wait a second African diaspora in India I never even heard about that and then in Pakistan yeah. as well. Yeah. And it was amazing. And I found out actually about Makran, which is a city near Karachi on the coast, which is like highly populated by people who'd come from East Africa and migrated to um, Pakistan, you know, the area of Pakistan hundreds of years ago. Just, and then exploring their music is just incredible, you know, it's just new stuff to discover all the time. Mm.